Hello, and welcome to a special episode of 13. This episode was recorded on Friday, February 17th, and uh, is part of the Leadership Conversation series we're having here on campus, where every month I talk to a new Colgate leader. And this episode in particular is a conversation with Provost and Dean of the Faculty, Leslie Cushing. I hope you enjoy. Hello! And welcome to the latest episode in a series of live conversations with Colgate leaders. We're going to explore and discuss the most significant transformation in the university's 200-year history, as outlined in the 3rd Century Plan and funded in large part by the Colgate Fund. Uh, if you have not submitted a question, or if you have any additional questions, please send them to alumni at colgate.edu, or feel free to send a direct message to us on Twitter at ColgateUniv or on our Facebook page. Uh, we hope to get to as many alumni questions as possible today, but if we don't get to your question, we may use it in a future broadcast. Today, we're going to be focused on the academic experience at Colgate and specifically how the university is investing in its faculty to further strengthen excuse me, to further strengthen what the university is best known for, and that is outstanding teaching, research, and preparation for a rewarding life after college. So who better uh, to talk about life in the classroom at Colgate than Provost and Dean of the Faculty, Leslie Cushing. Uh, Leslie is the Murray W. and Mildred K. Feinard Professor in Jewish Studies and Professor of Religion. Cushing earned her bachelor's degree from McGill University, her master's of theology from Harvard Divinity School, and her PhD from Boston University. Cushing teaches a variety of really compelling courses, including Core 151, Legacies of the Ancient World, Religion 101, World Religions, Religion 208, the Hebrew Bible in America, Religion 213, the Bible as Literature, Religion 228, Jerusalem, City of the Gods. Religion 283, Living Judaism. Religion 230, Feasting and Fasting. And Religion 348, Gender and Judaism. Provost Cushing, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Dan. So I'd like to start out with a little bit of background. And I'm very curious about your path from professor to provost. Um, it's an interesting path, I guess. Uh, I came to Colgate in 2002 as a professor of religion and Jewish studies, as you just said. It was the first year that we ever hired uh, faculty members into two programs or departments. It used to be you were hired just into one, and then maybe over time here, you might start to affiliate, say, with women's studies or Jewish studies. Um, but this was this kind of moment of saying, we'd like to flesh out our programs by actually stabilizing them with hires. So our programs are interdisciplinary with hires into programs. So I, I and Professor Mika Lowe were the kind of inaugural attempt to see if this was going to work. Um, and one of the really nice things for me about being hired kind of into two places simultaneously and also with an expectation that I would teach in the core, um, which has had a Hebrew Bible component and that's my area of study. And so there was a sense we need to make sure you're there as a resource for other faculty members is that I really quickly got to know a lot of different people on campus because I was teaching in the core with a bunch of one set of faculty. I was in the religion department, uh, which was then actually a philosophy and religion department, and then I was in Jewish studies. Um, and so I had a really strong sense from the beginning of my time at Colgate as being part of a broader thing than just one department and part of a bigger institution. Um, and I think 
over the last 20 years, that sense of being connected to all different parts of the institution have grown and grown. I took on some leadership, leadership um, positions uh, and then became an associate dean of the faculty focused on faculty recruitment, retention, and development for four years. Um, that led to, or part of that was thinking through uh, a middle campus plan, which is part of our third century plan. Um, so I was an advisor to the president for the year before I became provost. And then we did, Professor, uh, Professor President Casey um, did an internal search for a provost, um, and I emerged in that role. So uh, I feel like kind of long-standing sense of being woven into a lot of different communities on campus have helped lead me to the seat that I'm in where I now oversee the faculty and the academic enterprise as a whole. So, hmm. so for those unfamiliar with, I guess, higher ed, how higher education operates or if you've just been out of college for a long time, can you talk a little bit about the role of a provost on a college campus? What are you tasked with? So I think the kind of way to think about a provost, some people talk about it as a COO, sort of operations. Um, Others, uh, the kind of allocator of resources. So we have J.S. Hope, who I think will be on this show at some point. Um, he's the CFO. He's the one who's really deeply in the money. But the provost on a campus is a person who works with the CFO and the president to say these are our priorities and we want to make sure that we have resources that support those priorities. Um, so at Colgate, as at many schools, but definitely not all, um, the provost and the dean of the faculty are one, which means the kind of allocation and resor of resources uh, and the academic mission are really closely intertwined, which mm -hmm. is really appropriate because we're a university. Yeah. Um, so that makes a lot of sense. And sure. when those are disentangled, I think it can be problematic. So, um, so that's really the provostial role. As provost, as dean of the faculty, I oversee the faculty and the curriculum. Um, and as provost, I also oversee kind of what you might think of as adjacent units to the academic curriculum. So the libraries, the museums, ITS, um, national fellowships, sustainability, off-campus study. Um, I'm missing some, and they'll, I hope, forgive me if they're watching. There's a lot. Um, yeah. But there are th 13 other sort of side pieces, and those are our real academic partners. So um, people who collaborate with the faculty to make sure that the academic um, enterprise is really robust and, and well-supported. Well, let's get into some alumni questions. All right. All right. So uh, the first question I have here is from Bra Bob Cranson. Uh, he's a member of the class of 1965 from St. Louis, Missouri. And uh, Mr. Cranson asks, is philosophy and religion still an important part of the curriculum? So I'm guessing based on the year that um, Bob Cranston graduated in with a core that was shaped really around the Department of Philosophy and Religion. Mm -hmm. So for a long time, we had something that was called a kind of PNR core. Um, and every student took a, a courses taught by, philosoph by philosophers or religion, faculty or both. Um, and that was the, the centerpiece of the core. That core has evolved over time. Um, so it became, you, you talked about me teaching something called Core 151. Yes. So the kind of most recent iteration uh, was students taking a course called Legacies of the Ancient World and a course called um, Challenges of Modernity, Core 151 and Core 152, which are successors of Gen Ed 101 and Gen Ed 102, which are successors of this PNR core. Um, and all of those have kind of maintained a continuity of having philosophical questions and big questions being asked in text-based courses. Um, now we're moving to a new core that's going to start next year. 
Um, and we're maintaining that sort of spirit in a new course called Conversations, um, which looks across sort of time and history at texts that ask big questions. Um, and so students will continue that. Those courses, Conversations and Core 151 and 152, are taught by faculty across the, the curriculum, not just philosophy and religion. Um, so that question that you're asking about that program specifically is interesting. As I mentioned, when I started at Colgate in 20, 2002, we had one department that was philosophy and religion. In, I don't know, 2006 or seven, we split into two. Both of those are still really large departments for a school this size. So if you look at Williams or Amherst, am I allowed to name other schools? Oh, yeah, sure. Okay, of at course. the competitors, yeah, yeah. Um, you'll see religion and philosophy departments of five or six faculty members. Um, and we have uh, 10 or 11 in each of those departments still. So, in terms of a, a really important part of the curriculum, I would say absolutely yes. We have ongoing commitments to them as being um, critical to the liberal arts. And I think that's a really important to say also in a moment when we're looking at schools that are having to make hard decisions about their own resources, which we're not in that position, and closures of philosophy and religion departments across the country, um, Colgate stands strongly behind both of those departments, and not just because I named them. So, yeah. <laughs> it helps having a program from the department, right? Yeah. Um, all right, I have another question here. Um, this is from William Coaster, a uh, member of the class of 1967, and he's from Troy, New York. Uh, Mr. Uh, Coaster asks, when my son was entering Colgate as a freshman, one of the speakers added up the hours of sleep, meals, class time, study time, and an estimate of any other time commitments, and then said what you do with the remainder of time, your, quote, free time, will define the person you become after Colgate. May I ask that you comment and perhaps indicate what Colgate may be doing to influence this free time, especially with regard to the use of alcohol and drugs? That's a great question. Um, I feel a little fraudulent answering it because in some ways the free time is more determined by what my colleagues and um, collaborators in the dean of the college side of the campus who really look, focus on the student lived experience um, are, are programming. But I will say from a, a kind of culture, culture building perspective, if you look at the Colgate campus calendar, for instance, um, every night there are things happening that are not focused on drugs and alcohol, right? We have incredible film screenings. We have um, artists and speakers coming in from around the world. We have board game nights. We have um, students dance performances. We have dance clubs that are extracurricular. We have um, students who are doing pottery throwing in the basement of one of our dorms. We have um, these kind of rich ways for students to spend time that are not um, focused on kind of a party scene, if I can use that phrase. Sure. Um, I think the growth of things like outdoor education, um, a lot of wilderness adventure, a lot of students channeling their energies towards wellness-oriented um, free time uh, have been really wonderful developments. I also think when we look across the student body and where students are really engaged, um, and again, I'm not trying to <laughs> strike a, a, a too strong accord on the philosophy and religion point. I just got prompted in that direction. But our Office of the Chaplains is, uh, is provides tremendous programming for students who are both religiously oriented and skeptical. It's really interesting um, office. You know, there's a lot of um, programming around t uh, the Heretics Club, which is uh, students who don't believe in anything or many things. Um, and, and that is all kind of free time that is really about sort of growth and, and 
asking big questions and thinking big thoughts and not focused in those areas. So I think the the opportunities are widespread and many for students to engage in other ways with each other and with um, with the campus that, that aren't focused on drugs and alcohol. Uh, we had two similar questions that came in, um, so I've kind of combined them to make one question out of it. Uh, one, uh, it was uh, Ken Broad, a member of the class of 1988 from Mill Valley, California, and Danielle Fox, a member of the class of 1991 from Armonk, New York, and they ask, um, in summary, how is Colgate fostering debate on sensitive topics in classrooms uh, on campus? And why doesn't Colgate have a higher ranking by the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression, or commonly known as FIRE? Okay. Um, so I'll start by confessing a little bit of ignorance on, I, I am very familiar with FIRE, but I don't know how their ranking system works, so I can't directly answer the question of why our ranking isn't higher. Um, but I can certainly speak to free speech and um, academic freedom. So a number of years ago, Colgate recognize that we are kind of understated in where we stood on that. I mean, I think there's a baseline understanding it, or should be at least all colleges and universities, that academic freedom is a kind of tantamount uh, value. Um, but we decided to really set out what does it look like, what does it mean on this campus? And through a task force that was appointed by President Casey that involved faculty um, from across the political spectrum, staff, students and alumni, um, board of trustee members, we developed a, a statement on academic freedom and freedom of expression that was modeled on the Chicago statement, which I think is kind of the gold standard of these statements. And, so it's it hews very closely to the Chicago principle, um, but then pushes in, I think, a, a uniquely Colgate um, direction, which is to recognize that speech of any kind doesn't happen in a vacuum. Um, and so it asks folks to think about, but not be bound exclusively by sort of commitments to community harm, but to think about what does it mean to speak in community? Whenever we speak, we're speaking to someone else or about something that others will hear. So um, setting a frame of kind of community awareness um, which is not, I think, a restriction on free speech at all. It's it's a kind of accountability question, right? When you're speaking, why are you choosing to say these things? Um, it's asking folks to sort of ask questions before they um, make pronouncements. Uh, and so it's encouraging a kind of reflectiveness that I think is really important. In the classroom setting, I think we have work to do. Um, and this is not just Colgate, but we're seeing national surveys where students do feel that they need to self-censor. What's interesting is students we've learned a lot here on this campus, but as I say, this is a national trend, are more concerned about the judgments of their peers in a classroom setting than they are about the judgment of their faculty members. And mm -hmm. I think that's really interesting because there's such a strong rhetoric about the kind of liberal prof professoriate, right? So one might think that they're worried about, you know, a conservative student might think they're worried about alienating the liberal professor or a, a a devoutly religious student might worry about that, um, assume, an assumption that their secular professor might have issues with their religious speech. Um, and we are finding that that's not the case. It's really students worrying about each other. Mm -hmm. um, so the question for me as the dean of the faculty, how do we empower faculty to enable them to kind of create more open spaces of dialogue? So um, I'm seeing faculty taking the lead in their own classes as they think about sort of um, 
conversation circles, right? Creating sort of smaller areas of conversation so that you know the people you're speaking to and may have a kind of sense of trust because you really get to know individual other students. And then you can build a stronger community um, in the classroom based on that kind of trust that's built by developing relationships and encouraging relationships you know, intellectually within, within smaller groups. Um, we have faculty members who are kind of espousing something that was in, I can't remember if it was the Chronicle or, I think it might have been a Chronicle piece. Um, somebody talking about the kind of Vegas notion, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, so what happens in the classroom stays in the classroom, that the classroom is a kind of protected area mm -hmm. um, so that you don't go out of the class afterwards and tweet, oh, there was a student in my class who said this and I can't even believe it, right? So that really kind of thinking of the classroom as a sacred space um, for a freer exchange of ideas. So on an individual level, I'm encouraged by what I'm seeing faculty members trying. Um, but I have been talking a lot with folks on campus to think about how do we do this at a greater institutional level. So how do we encourage open discourse and debate? So we've been working with a foundation to try to raise some fundraise, fundraising for some programming around open exchange and dialogue. I'd like to do um, more development, pedagogical development with faculty members who really, really want to open up their classroom spaces for um, free and safe exchange of ideas. Um, we're talking about uh, this at some tables that I've been in, in inviting faculty members to dinners at the dean's house um, on academic freedom and freedom of expression, and also thinking about academic freedom and DEI initiatives, which in <laughs> a number of instances in the news that we're seeing seem to be on a collision course with right. each other. Mm -hmm. um, and how do we think about these values as actually potentially mutually enforcing rather than antagonistic to one another? And these are really big questions and I'm really excited to be sort of exploring them with um, kind of small circles of faculty members and then building that out over time and then having this trickle out effect of uh, open discourse with students as well. So not just in the classroom but thinking about potentially down the line. Um, uh, maybe a theme house on Broad Street that is about open dialogue and discourse and debate. Um, and we're, we're really starting the conversations about what the shape of that might be. All right, very nice. And in fact, if, um, if folks were curious at home and wanted to see Colgate's uh, statement on academic freedom and freedom of expression, it can be found on the website. And if you just search uh, freedom of expression, it comes right up uh, in the search. So that's kind of nice. Um, we'll go on to the next question I have here. Uh, this is from Craig Bell. He is a member of the class of 1965, and he's from Sherman, Connecticut. And Craig asks, uh, in summary, uh, why doesn't Colgate have a major in metaphysics? All right, that's a good question. And it's a question that I think you could probably take the question and then sub in that last word, any number of other things, because um, I think we don't have comprehensive all the possible majors on a campus like this, um, but we have a lot. We have 54, I think, majors and minors, um, and we have grown them a little bit recently. So in the last, I don't know, two, three years, we've added, for instance, um, a minor in global public and environmental health. We've added a minor in museum studies, which is a standalone program. We used to have a kind of concentration within um, art and art history that was museum studies and we realized it's much more interdisciplinary than just art and art history so now it's a, a standalone program. Um, so we have we have lots of opportunities for students but we don't get every single one of them even as we are growing our majors and our minors. Um, so the metaphysics question is interesting because I think it 
it's suggesting an interdisciplinarity, right? Um, it would be presumably a program that would draw maybe courses from religion, from philosophy, possibly from physics um, and astronomy, maybe from um, anthropology with like myth studies. You could imagine there might be English classes that would fit into such a, a major. Um, and I think what I would say sort of why don't we have it is that um, we don't have a kind of student demand for it in you know, en masse that we're hearing of like we did with Global Public and Environmental Health where we were responding to a lot of students wanting this. Um, but also we do actually have a kind of lever if there were a student who wanted to do something like this that was really interdisciplinary. Um, you can design your own major. This is actually a little known fact. Um, mm. And you can do it within um, arts and humanities or social sciences and you can go and you, you do it at the appropriate time. So it can't be that you're a senior and you suddenly realize, oops, I forgot to declare a major <laughs> and let's try to kind of create one post hoc. Um, but you know, if you're a thoughtful student, we have lots of them who are, I mean, all, all of our students are thoughtful, but we have a number of them who do say, I'd like to sort of concentrate in these areas. I'm interested in the intersection of say, politics, philosophy, and economics. Can I construct a major in that space? And, mm -hmm. and working with a division director and a faculty member, they can do that. So if, um, I'm guessing Craig Bell uh, probably won't come back to do one, but if he had a, a grandchild who wanted to do one, um, that would be the way to go about putting that major together. And there would be, I think, very interested faculty across different departments who'd be willing to sponsor that. So. How many, do you know about how many I people do their know. own major a year? I would say probably three or four okay. a year. Yeah. Um, and it, you know, we do have so many options and a lot of departments allow you to kind of trace a track through a major. So again, I'm gonna hit the religion department um, drum again. Um, but say in religion, you could do a kind of focus on religion, politics, philosophy, or you or religion, politics, and law, or you could focus your studies on religion, health, um, and healing, or something like that. So, so a student who's interested in that, those triangulations, they wouldn't have to go make their own major, but they could kind of chart a course through the major. So, um, so students are doing creative things even within majors that kind of inflect their major with their own I don't know, imprint uh, in a way. And I, I like that, that they're able um, to do that. M religion and a number of other departments also allow you to count one, uh, one or sometimes two courses from outside the department towards a major because they re we realized in a liberal arts setting, so many of our courses are complementary to kind of keep people very tightly in a discipline doesn't always make sense, right? In chemistry, it makes sense, um, but in religion, in um, history, it might make sense to sort of allow you to reach out or take a, a, a language course and bring it in towards the major or minor too. So um, there's flexibility sometimes within majors as well. Nice. Um, I've been fortunate to go to a number of alumni events recently and I've heard a lot of questions. Um, uh -oh. and, and, and But a lot of them kind of focus on a couple of specific areas. So I do want to ask um, for those folks, um, if you read the news these days, if you listen to the news, um, you're going to hear something about how AI, uh, in, in particular ChatGPT, might impact teaching, how it's going to affect learning and coursework, and that educators are struggling with you know, how to, I don't want to say deal with it, but how to think about um, AI's impact on the classroom. So I'm curious how Colgate is approaching those big questions related to AI and how you think teaching might change as a result of really increasingly powerful tools for computer-generated writing. 
these are great questions, and they are obviously front of mind for all of us. Um, so I don't remember what the date was, November 8th, December 8th, this thing sort of appears. I mean, many, but certainly our faculty, we have three of them working in, AI, in the AI sphere in our computer science department. You know, they knew this was coming, but that kind of sudden day of announcement where the whole world seems <laughs> to have changed around <laughs> academic writing um, is not that long ago. It's, you know, within the last three, four months. So we've been talking about it a lot on campus, um, and it's very interesting. I think a lot of our initial impulse was, uh-oh, right? Because what does this mean? I think um, the Atlantic had one of the artic early articles, and it was titled, like, The End of College Writing or something along those lines, and you're like, wow, okay. Um, and so I think the kind of first impulses when we started to grapple with this question were around um, academic honesty. Uh, how do I make sure that the paper that gets submitted wasn't written by a robot, right? right. Um, and what's been really interesting as we've developed more conversations on campus is that that remains a question, I guess, but it's not really the most important question. I think the bigger questions are, what is this tool and how can it help us in our teaching and our, um, and our learning? You know, we, we already have started to assimilate some of it into what we're doing every day, right? If I, you write me an email and say, hey, do you want to have lunch next week? And I start an email back and it says, yes, comma, there's going to be an autofill that says, lunch sounds great, right, yeah, period. Sure. And yeah. I hit that, you know, because it saves me typing those extra words without thinking I've just created something that wasn't mine, right? This thing just happened to predict my thoughts, right? So there's yeah. a kind of sense that we're in a murky area right now anyway. Um, and I think what we want to think about as teachers is how can those tools help our students with their writing rather than how can they be, how do, how do we think of, or how do we keep them at bay, right, as threats? Um, and so there have been a lot of really interesting essays um, circulating around chat GPT's uh, ability to help a student or, or a faculty member, for that matter, with writer's block, right? You're like trying to figure out what is that first sentence? What's the first idea? Or how can we use it to think about creating um, an outline of something where we do the fleshing in? There are faculty members who have started to work with the kind of what the chat GPT out and sort of running um, a prompt of theirs through it and then bringing a paper to the class and say, okay, this is what the, the machine created. How does this fall short? Why is this not college writing? Why is this the level that we might anticipate? Um, what is it doing with, uh, with the data that it's drawing, right? It, one of the things I think if you, I don't, if you played in this space at all, um, ChatGPT is very clear that it doesn't make moral judgments. Mm. Um, it doesn't have any opinions, right? It's it's a predictive technology, so it's just sort of creating the sentences as they flow out based on the likelihood of the last word generating the next word, right? Um, and so there is this sense of um, where do we encourage students to be the thinkers that ChatGPT cannot be, right? So ChatGPT can like do a beautiful bibliography for them, and I think that's great because I think those of us who went to college 20 years ago and spent a lot of time learning Chicago manual style and uh, yeah. MLA and yes. like figure out how many periods go after uh, um, between the name of the author and the, the name of the title, you know, all of that. That's a lot of like not useful labor that we all <laughs> learn. So if you can just say to ChatGPT, here are my six books, um, put them into a nice MLA, that's fantastic. Um, ChatGPT is not going to be speculative. It's not going to be able to say based, you know, in a paper, I've been thinking about what William James has to say about phenomenology of religion, and it makes me 
think about something I read in a philosophy course um, on a different topic, which then connects to something I learned in poli-sci. And what I want to do is sort of speculate about the space of connection between these three different thinkers. ChatGPT can't do any of that, but that's exactly what a good liberal arts thinker does, is make these connections. Mm -hmm. And so it, you know, it might be helpful in getting you the bones. Now the question is, where do you bring your brain into these topics? So what I've really liked being in conversation with faculty members about this is think about the possibility and the potential as a pedagogical tool rather than the threat of it. It'll get better. It's going to get better and better and better. And then we have to ask the questions you know, that that are sort of more meta and we'll get there, but like um, when it's an excellent writer of college level papers, what does a college level paper prompt start to look like? Um, anything that's bringing in a student's own personal thoughts, the, the student is always still gonna win. But I think about uh, chess playing, for instance, right? A uh, human cannot beat the machines anymore, but humans are becoming better chess players because they are playing against machines that they can't beat. And so um, there will be a kind of question in the longer term, is this gonna make our writing better because we're sort of trying to outright uh, a machine? Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that that's an exciting question to ask. So um, I've had a couple of dinners um, and we've had a couple of teaching tables around this question. We're gonna continue to ask a lot of questions and have really good conversations about sort of what is the role of college writing in an age of chat GPT and I think those questions are really, really exciting and I'm loving the kinds of answers that my colleagues are coming up with. That's really neat, thank you. Um, the Third Century Plan also includes a number of initiatives designed to attract and retain the best faculty. And um, one of those in particular is the idea of moving all of the faculty at Colgate to what is called a four course load. Can you talk about what that means and what impact that might have in the classrooms? Yeah, um, I can talk about that sort of in the context of we um, have really done a lot to try to draw the best faculty members that we can to Colgate. Um, so over the last few years through the third century plan, we've increased the leave allotment for people after they pass a kind of first major review before they stand for tenure and promotion to associate. So we used to give uh, faculty a semester leave that allowed them to do kind of immersive research in preparation for their tenure review. We now have a year-long year leave. Um, when I started back in the dark ages, uh, we had um, startup funds only for faculty members in the natural sciences. Um, and now we have startup funds for all faculty members. So, you know, if you need to travel to an archive or a research site, we can now um, give you uh, grants that allow you to do that. Uh, so really trying to launch people's scholarly careers as they begin at Colgate, right? Giving them the tools to, to not have to think about outside funding and to, to be able to kind of get right into their research when they start. Um, because we expect faculty to do research in all the areas, in social sciences, natural sciences, arts and humanities, and interdisciplinary studies. Um, every faculty member needs to be an excellent scholar and an excellent teacher. And we see these two as really connected to each other. So um, scholarship is not something that takes away from teaching. We see uh, an active scholar what they are learning out in their fields and what they're contributing to their fields should come right back into the classroom. And for me, I know as a teacher, a lot of what I did in the classroom actually went out into my scholarship, right? Particularly since I was, you know, thinking about working in a senior seminar um, with students who were taking courses in political science or history, uh, that what they brought into my classes became sort of sites of research when I was doing stuff on the Bible in American politics, for instance. I was learning from them, and then there was this kind of like really nice 
flow between fa uh, research and scholarship. So um, as we become more competitive and as we're really, really trying to get the top-notch faculty coming out of graduate programs, um, and by and large, we actually do yield our first choice candidates, which is really exciting. Uh, we want to make sure that we are offering a competitive kind of teaching experience and research experience for faculty members. A lot of our peer schools have a 2-2 load. So what that means is in one semester you teach two courses and in the other semester you teach two courses. What okay. we have right now is a five-course teaching load, a three and a two or a two and a three. You can organize them however it makes sense for you. Um, so from a kind of strictly competitive lens, it makes sense to have the 2-2 load because we're competing against schools that do have that. Um, I think that we are really, really oriented towards teaching, right? And that is not going away. We, as I said, demand excellence of our faculty members in the teaching sphere. And I think a lot of faculty members feel that the three-course load there's always one course that you're not performing at the same level as the other two, right? It is, a, it is an onerous load um, as you're trying to also balance research. And what it does, what you end up having to cut, are those additional moments that you can spend with students, right? You, you have to spread your office hours over three classes worth of students rather than two. Um, you can take on fewer honors theses or um, independent studies because you are managing three courses worth of students and three courses worth of preparation. So we see the three-course load as enhancing research, but also really enhancing the ability of faculty members to have more intensive experiences in their engagements with students, right? More chances for those long conversations in the office hours, more chances for um, deeper, longer feedback on assignments, for um, bringing students into your own research spaces because you just have a little bit more bandwidth in your day and week and semester. And so to us, the, the two-course semester redounds back to the student rather than is detracting. Um, it is going to be complicated to figure out how to do it because one of the things we're committed to is, you know, you can get to a, a smaller teaching load very quickly if all of your courses have 100 students in them, but we want to maintain the kinds of faculty-student ratios that we've always had, and so we want to do this intelligently and well. It will be a, a slow rollout, and it will require us to think about kind of how we structure our curricula across across all of the departments, um, but we're excited about it because we do think it will have a net positive effect on the student experience and on our um, scholarly productivity and output, too. Mm. Will that require more professors? It will require a, f a few more professors. It's not going to be a one-fifth expansion. What we have to do is think sort of more strategically about how we use our teaching power. Um, we have, again, what makes us really competitive, a good um, cycle of leaves and sabbaticals. Um, and we don't always time them well in coordination with each other. So mm -hmm. one of the things is if, if you have a leave slated and three other people in your department do, we tend to not want to stand in front of somebody's ability to take that leave so they can do that research that then comes back into their teaching. We'll have to structure those things better so that we don't have multiple people on leave at the same time in a department, and that will help with that. Um, but we'll probably grow the faculty, you know, by less, by a dozen, ten, okay. ten faculty members, somewhere in there, and I think we can achieve that load by doing that. Yeah. Um, we also have endowed chairs uh, that you may want to ask my next me question. about. Okay, cool. Yeah, yeah. Um, so we, you, you can prompt your question. I'll preempt with one thing: <laughs> is that um, people who have recently been given these new endowed chairs are, have been given a full course load with as part of the chair. So we're slowly rolling out the full course load through the endowed chairs too. All right, well, let's get into the endowed chair portion here. Okay. So I was gonna say, 
Um, you know, this is another ambitious goal for the university when we uh, launched the campaign for the third century. Part of that included um, this goal to create 20 new endowed chairs, um, and 12 of which I understand have already been funded. Mm -hmm. Um, what does it mean to have an endowed chair, and why is it so important to the academic endeavor here at Colgate? So an endowed chair is a kind of, it's both an honor and a practical thing, right? So so the honor of it is a person or a family um, puts their name, attaches their name to a position on the campus, not to a specific person, but to a position. So an endowed chair, for instance, in um, arts, creativity, and innovation, we now have a few of those, an endowed chair in um, uh, health um, in some ways, or an endowed chair in, in my case, Jewish studies. So it could be kind of narrow or it could be broader. And, and we look across the university, and there's a kind of process for, for naming uh, a chair. And so the, the family or the donor gives a chair, they attach their name to it, and then we say, who is the most qualified faculty member to occupy that chair. And so we look at their research records, we look at their teaching, we look at their service to the university, and we say, we'd like to give you, in my case, the Fenard Chair um, in Jewish Studies. And then my name and that uh, family, in this case, um, uh, two parents, uh, get attached, you know, kind of commingled, right? So that I am now the Fenard Chair in Jewish Studies. And what that means for me as a scholar is a, a sense that the university has bestowed an honor on me, they have seen me as an outstanding scholar and teacher um, and servant of the university. And they also have enhanced um, my ability to do the research part of my job by giving me funds that are for research that come with the named chair. So that's the kind of sense of it. And then we, you know, we want to encourage um, stewarding relationships when that's possible. I mean, not all the donors are still living, but in cases where they are, you know, it's it's a nice thing to be able to write a report out to the family that gave it and said, this is my research productivity, or to mail them a copy of a recent book and say, you know, thanks to the funds that came through the Fenard chair, I was able to complete this piece of scholarship that um, now sort of makes your name known and Colgate's na name more known in my professional field. So it, it's, um, it's really an honor for faculty. I think a lot of faculty feel very deeply connected mm. to their chairs um, and to this this name that then attaches to them and you know it's on the signature when they send an email sure. and it's yeah. on their business cards and there is this sense of like that's part of their intellectual identity so it's uh, it's a really it's a wonderful I guess honor is the only way to hmm. the, the best way to describe it how are those selected is there like a the dean's advisory council you know people rotate out of chairs or there's a retirement and a chair opens up um, we sit and we sort of say, okay, who qualifies for the chair, right? If it's in economics, then we're obviously only looking in the economics department, sure, right? And then yeah. we're looking, we, we gather the CVs of members of the department and we sit down and we say, okay, this person has been here this amount of time and their scholarship is really, really solid and um, their teaching the last little while has been fantastic and gosh, they've also chaired the department and they are really active in their professional organization. This seems like the right person to give this chair to. So it's a collaborative decision in the context of the Dean's Advisory Council. So, hmm. yeah. I'm going to ask you about two of the 
current construction projects okay. on campus yeah. that are going on. And one would be um, when President Casey was in the studio in January, he spoke about the construction going on at Olin Hall and the Ho Mind Brain Behavior uh, Center yep. initiative. Um, can you talk more about that initiative and how you see that having an impact on students and faculty? So um, one of the kind of signatures of the, we have three big academic initiatives. One of them is sort of the, a little bit farther behind in its development than the two um, that probably President Casey talked about, which actually have physical buildings coming with them. Um, so one is mind, brain, behavior. Yes. Um, and then the other is arts, creativity, and innovation. And then the third that is more a programmatic initiative is um, public affairs and policy research. And that's a mm. uh, kind of growing initiative right now. The mind, brain, and behavior, the crane is sitting there. Yeah. Um, the steel is now coming in. You know, we are really moving along on that project, and it's really exciting. Um, it is, I think, as Professor, as President Casey probably explained, uh, it's not just a building project, but it does involve a building project, and that is an expansion of the spaces for psychological and brain sciences, for neuroscience, and for biology. Um, so those three program departments now we'll have better spaces, lab spaces, um, office spaces, teaching spaces, as well as social spaces to, for students to gather and to kind of work together, which has been something that's really missing in the Olin building. It's a kind of linear building with hallways and not these um, opportunities for kind of group collaborative work among students. So the, the redesigned building creates those spaces. But the, the initiative is not limited to those three departments. Um, Rather, it is interdisciplinary. So what I like about the Mind, Brain, and Behavior Board, for instance, is that you've got people from those three areas, but there's also um, somebody from the English department on it who is not trained in these areas, but has really become more interested in how um, neuroscience and uh, has helped us think about what literature is and why we respond to literature. We actually have a speaker coming on that um, uh, this coming Tuesday, I guess it is, and it it's, is, yep. uh, you can see it on Zoom. Um, Paul Armstrong, who's at Brown and works on neuroscience and literature. We've got um, a newly tenured faculty member who works on psychology and politics and is interested in kind of the psychology of voting and the psychology of partisanship. Um, he's now part of it. We have folks in philosophy who work on um, philosophy of mind, philosophy of language who are connected to it. We have um, behavioral behavioral econo economists. I'll can't speak anymore, <laughs> um, involved. So that there is this sense that it is really multidisciplinary, interdisciplinary, and we're thinking about why humans and non-humans um, do things, what causes us to behave in certain ways. And, and this, these are really interesting questions that span all kinds of disciplines. Um, so there's the building, then there's the kind of group of folks who are in these conversations, the programming that's going on. We just uh, released, actually earlier today, uh, four letters to folks who had applied to for initiative funding from the Mind, Brain, and Behavior Initiative. Um, and we were able to say to them, hey, we have grant funding from Colgate to do some of your projects. So um, two, two of those projects, for instance, one of them is a, a um, collaboration between two professors in psych and brain sciences and neuro with a professor in music, and they are asking about leadership styles and the ways that the brain responds to different types of leadership. Um, and the, interestingly, the, the person in music is our choral conductor, and so he is a kind of leader, and I assume there's questions about sort of how students who are singing under his 
leadership um, are responding to the kinds of directives that he gets in his style of conducting. I, I think those are some of the questions, um, how people, how leaders' speech has an impact on the brain of people who are receiving that speech. Um, another one of the ones that we just funded is two faculty members. They're both in psychological and brain sciences. Um, one works on human relationships and particularly couples and older couples, and one works on sleep patterns, and she usually works on children and sleep patterns, but their collaboration is thinking about older couples and sleep patterns and how relationships and sleep patterns um, may be connected to one another. So so those are you know these moments of, of you know, people really thinking about different types of questions and being able to collaborate um, using resources from this grant funding that allow them to ask questions together that will kind of illuminate each of their own fields. Um, so that's the mind, brain, and behavior kind of a, a little taste of the programming that we're thinking about. On the student side, um, more spaces for student research. A lot of students are involved in our second brain sciences and biology faculty research. Um, we have, I think, virtually every faculty member, I'm just trying to think if there are exceptions, but almost all faculty members in both of those departments um, do research with students and it's very common for them to have students as co-authors on papers. So the spaces that we're creating will allow for more lab spaces for that kind of student um, involvement in scholarship as well. I was wondering if it was like a chicken and egg question, like was there so much demand in those areas yeah. that it made sense yes. to do that expansion? Yeah, yeah, and we've watched psychology, biology, psychological and brain sciences, biology and neuroscience grow as majors on campus, and we really wanted to respond to that demand because um, there was a lot of student interest in those three. I think all three are in the top 10 majors on campus oh, right wow. now, yeah. And then the other side on campus, where they're busy um, digging up steam lines and, and everything else, but the, the Benton Center for uh, Creativity and Innovation, yeah. um, how do you see that also playing a role uh, in the, I guess, the future of the middle campus and the impact on the student experience here? That's another, I'm really excited about that project and was involved with that very closely for a long time. Um, so for those not in the know, that is a building that is, as as you've just said, it's got, um, right now it's a, a cesspool, I guess, or like a, <laughs> yeah. a pit, a pit, basically. Yeah, a, a big hole in the ground. Yeah, big hole in yeah. the ground um, with a lot of pipes running through it and we're moving them. And soon, um, within the next few weeks, we're actually putting the foundations in. So it will soon start to really feel like not just an absence, but a presence. Um, the building will be for film and media studies and computer science. So already that kind of fusion of two really different ways of, of exploring and creating knowledge, um, having them collaborating together and coexisting is really, really exciting. Um, the kind of signature spaces in the building are about hands-on learning in really exciting ways. So obviously with the computer sciences program, we would have computer science labs, but we'll also have a media and archaeology, media archaeology lab, so allowing students not just to play with the most contemporary current technologies, but to kind of understand where these technologies come from, right? And technologies that at least I um, am familiar with that they don't know at all anything about an eight-track cassette player, a jukebox, typewriters, um, typewriters yeah. absolutely, cameras with film in them, can you imagine? <laughs> um, a phone with a, a cord that, you know, and a dial. Um, so really trying to get them familiar with and conversant with older technologies and how those technologies bring about the new technologies and how actually sometimes there are moments when you can do something with an older technology 
that you can't do with a newer one. You and I actually were talking the other day about the upcoming Colgate um, magazine cover. Yes. And that's shot not using digital photography, oh, right? Yeah. Yes, it's old. It's a film, older technology, and and the kind of strengths and and joys of some of these older technologies. We interestingly have had a Steenbeck editing machine, a film editing machine, um, in our, our arts building for a while, and this will now have a space in the the new that media uh, lab. So so hands on learning in that space. We are designing two kind of very distinct other lab spaces in the Benton Center. One is a robotics lab uh, that will allow, for instance, two of our faculty members in computer science have just introduced a new course called Gadgets and Gizmos that allow students to create uh, technologies. And so that, that will um, happen in this new space. We have a, what we're calling Fab Lab, a fabrication lab that will have a digital loom, one of the interesting kind of ways that the conversation around the development of Benton Center has happened is computer science and arts and and film and media studies have been in the conversation, but other programs have as well. So one of our faculty members is a uh, is housed in art and art history, but she is she works on emerging media and she's interested in environmental questions. So we have faculty members in the sciences who have sensors all around campus that are monitoring uh, climate and precipitation, humidity, um, air temperature, those kinds of things. That data could come into our digital loom and the digital loom could be programmed by students to visualize it and to print it out, in, in weave it out in different ways so that we would have kind of drapery or flags or whatever it might be, um, reflecting the weather patterns and the climate patterns being tracked across campus. Hmm. Um, we one of you know we'll have a 3D printer because everybody has a 3D 3D printer, but we'll also <laughs> I bet have be a few. yeah a few. Yeah. <laughs> uh, one of them will be able to do organic material, not oh, just sort of plastics. So thinking about that could do paper mache kind of printing or clay printing, and that opens up new fields of exploration, uh, laser cutters, those kinds of things. So this fabrication lab will be a really really exciting space for students to do hands-on work in, and can be used by. Um, students who are also doing entrepreneurial work through our entrepreneurship and innovation programs like T TIA. So that's an exciting uh, a space as well. We'll have an experimental exhibition and performance space, basically a white cube that we can project onto all the walls. It will be acoustically sound. We have a digital music studio that will pipe music into, so students could perform in the digital music studio and have it piped into this experimental performance space. So there could be, say, dancers happening, uh, taking place, a dance in the um, performance space with the music being provided by students in the digital studio. The projection capacity will be allowed to not just project, say, film or larger images, but actually you could put a microscope and project a microscope onto oh, all the neat. walls, floors, and ceilings of the um, of the experimental exhibition and performance space. So if you think about something like immersive Van Gogh that is sort of yes. popular at museums right now, we could do immersive Van Gogh or immersive um, Manet or whatever it is, but we could also do immersive amoeba if you uh, wanted to, where you're yeah. kind of sitting in, this, in something that's projected um, small scale to really, really broad scale. So it's been super exciting to work with these really, really thoughtful, creative people in all of these different disciplines, music, art and art history, film and media studies, computer science, um, physics and astronomy, uh, biology, um, and imagine spaces that will be really, really available to students to, to play 
um, in creative ways and to kind of explore intellectually, allow themselves to push out further. We have faculty in art and art history who are teaching coding. Um, and then we have computer scientists who are thinking about graphic imagery. And so these kind of confluences are going to be all the more um, able to happen in the space of the Benton Center. Hmm. It's funny you mentioned um, legacy media because we're, the studio that we're in right now, this used to be a dark room. We're in the basement of Lathrop Hall, 006 Lathrop, if anybody uh, is wondering at home. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's a space where there's no more film developing at yep. the moment. Yep. So um, it's fascinating. It is. Yeah. It is. The um, future is here. We, we don't have a ton of time left, and that was why my computer beeped. Um, oh, okay. And uh, I think before we wrapped up, I wanted to give you a moment to talk about just anything you're excited about on campus this year or things you're looking forward to um, in the year ahead, in the years ahead um, as part of the third century plan or just in general. Um, curious. I, I'm excited about it all. I mean, I really think I've been here for 21 years. This is an incredible moment to be at Colgate. It really, uh, the sense of growth and excitement and ability and willingness to enact our dreams right now you know we we've had all of these ideas for a long time and it was never clear can we make them happen you know could we get an Olin expansion could we develop the middle campus could arts creativity and innovation become something are there opportunities for uh, much more kind of cross-pollination across the social sciences with this policy research initiative these have been seedlings for a while, and mm. to watch them really sort of start to grow is is very exciting. I think many people have heard me talk about the fact that the Arts Creativity Innovation Initiative that we have now, it's the 13th plan on the arts that folks at Colgate have written. The first plan was written in 1919, right? Um, and it was wow. saying we need better arts facilities. So 100 years and 12 plans later, we're doing it, lucky and we're 13. doing it. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> the lucky thirteen, um, and we're doing it in ways that are so much more ambitious than what we had been thinking. You know, we'd often constrained ourselves to kind of one area, right? Um, MBBI was initially a what would you do with three thousand square feet when we lift the dying HVAC system out of the building, and now it's what does a whole sort of new side of a building look like. Uh, the last plan, which was actually a really good one, but it, uh, on the arts was we need a performing and visual arts center, right? Just a, a performing arts center, actually, not even visual arts. So we popped open from performing arts to kind of creativity much more broadly. And those that ability to think um, widely and broadly and, and connectedly across disciplines, that is really exciting. The caliber of faculty we are hiring, I, I've just come through. This is where I get all dewy-eyed. Um, a promotion and tenure cycle where I immersed myself uh, along with our promotion and tenure committee in what we call dossiers of, you know, almost two dozen faculty members and I read deeply about their research and their teaching and the service that they do for the university and in the world. Um, we have amazing colleagues and it is so exciting, you know, to tenure them and to say, hey, this, you're now co-owners of this university. How do you want to shape it? What do you want to do? Um, so this, this moment of kind of feeling like we can do what, what we've always wanted to do is, is really exciting. And um, President Casey's leadership, this significant campaign that we're in, um, those are amazing for the academic enterprise. 
Also, the quality of students is phenomenal. You know, we are working with the best students in the country. And the Colgate commitment that allows more students to access this incredible education. These are This is a really, really exciting time to be here. So I'm, I'm super proud. And I feel like um, very lucky to be involved in the mix at this moment. That is so, yeah, it's so buoyant for the university. That's great. Professor Cushing, thank you so much it's for joining pleasure. us thank today. You, Dan. This is really great. Um, thank you to everyone uh, watching at home or at work or wherever you are. And um, if you want to learn more about some of the things we were talking about today, you can go to thirdcentury.colgate.edu. Uh, you can visit colgate.edu for uh, other details. You can also visit uh, colgateresearchmagazine.com or colgatemagazine.com. And uh, check out some of the stories in there about some of the faculty and some of the students and, and the work being done here. Uh, so until next month, uh, have a great day, and uh, we'll see you. Thanks so much for listening to this special episode of 13. Uh, we will be back in two weeks with a regular episode. And until then, keep asking questions. 13 is a production of the Colgate University Office of Communications and Events. Episodes are recorded on campus in Lathrop Hall. Executive producer, Colgate Vice President for Communications and Events, L. Hazel Jack. Producer and host, Dan DeVries. And audio production by Brian Ness. Learn about all the happenings at Colgate at colgate.edu, colgatemagazine.com, and colgateresearchmagazine.com.